Romans 4, beginning at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord, and we thank God for this reading of His word. Well, let's open our Bibles to Romans and to Romans chapter 4 this evening. <clears throat> as we think about this passage together, Romans chapter 4, uh, please do keep it open uh, as we look at this. So, assuming that there is a heaven, what do you think the general requirements are for admission? 
Imagine someone came up to you in the street and they said to you, assuming there is a heaven, what are the requirements for admission? Who gets in and who doesn't? Well, I wonder where we would start to go. What would we start to say? I wonder what, what we would say tonight if I was to pass around a sheet and there was a survey. Well, what, what, what sort of things, or, or actually if we, if we broadened it out and we went across the Presbyterian denomination and we sent out a, an anonymous survey and they were to return all of their replies to Hill Street and we sat down on a Wednesday night and we opened up all of their replies, what would be said? I think some things like this would come back. Well, we just obey the biblical rules. We suck it up and we hope for the best. We do what we're told and we do it better. We give it our best shot and we hope for the best. Or, or someone might say, well, just do lots of nice things. If you do lots of nice things, uh, then it'll be okay. The, the, hopefully, the balances will tip in our favor and the Lord will deem us to have entry. Or someone might say, do what I can while I can, and I'll be all right with the big man. Do what I can while I can, and I'll be all right with the big man. And these are not great options. Now, if we were to turn it around to you tonight, and we said, and now, uh, to set that question aside for a little moment, if you were on the gates of heaven, and you had to decide what the entrance requirements would be, what would you say? Now, that becomes a very different question and a very interesting question. For some of us, we might say, well, you'd have to do 20 press-ups to get through the door. And Leslie's probably well fit for that after all of his work in Chile. Some people might say, well, you'd have to be from Portadown, or you'd have to be from Lurgan, or you'd have to be from Armagh. Or some people would have to say, you, you, you'd need to have grown up a Presbyterian, or you'd have to be able to quote the catechism to me. People would have different things. They would say different things, none of which are great options, none of which are concrete, none of which we can set a, a ourselves on. There's no set standard. We're all a little bit in the dark if we start to answer questions in the first way or if we start to come up with answers in the second way. And so what we see tonight in Romans chapter 4 is this. Paul makes it really clear, really, really, really clear that if someone should come up to us in the street tomorrow, that we will have the answer. How do I get to heaven? How do I get admission into heaven? Well, what does Paul say? That we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so what we're going to see tonight in Romans chapter 4 is nothing new. But I trust that we will have a deeper grasp on the basic things. Because that's what Paul really does in Romans. He keeps coming back to the basic things, the main things. And what he is doing is he's forcing us to think. Paul's epistles, that's what they do. He, he forces us to think and to think and to think, to think deeply, to figure out what is going on, and then to enjoy it. And so, what we're looking at tonight, we're not, we're not being distracted as Christian people off into some subset, some weird avenue that, that takes us away from Christ, into some mumbo-jumbo of, of what seems to be Christianity. What we're thinking about, what Paul wants us to think about, is the, is the basics. So, 
the question that he begins with in chapter 4 and verse 1, what shall we say then was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? You see how he's provoking us? He's trying to make us think. And that's what we're going to do tonight. Sinclair Ferguson says that Paul wants us to think because that is how our lives are transformed. Sometimes what happens at the front of churches is that a, a minister gets up and they, they preach a sermon that everyone knows is, is good in some sense, but no one has a clue what they're on about. They use big words and they use fancy terms, and it means very little to each of us. We have all sat in sermons like that. Paul says that we got to think about this. Sinclair Ferguson says when we think we will be transformed, and for us to think about it, we got to have it explained clearly, and that's exactly what he's doing for us in Romans. It's the secret of holiness to, to have our minds engaged. That's where it begins, says John Stott. And so let's trace his logic. Uh, Paul, if you like, has uh, constructed in Romans uh, a, great, uh, a great high skyscraper for us and it's the skyscraper of the gospel, and it's glass all the way around. And as you go up, there's an elevator that goes, and each chapter the elevator goes up story after story. And as we go up, we get to see greater views, as it were. And so tonight we're on level four, and he's trying to show us the beauty of what it looks like to be justified by faith. And so, our first point is simply that. We are justified by faith alone. This is going to run from uh, chapter 3, verse 27. We'll go back a little bit, uh, and we'll, we'll take it in then to chapter 4. There are three elements of faith that have been understood since the Reformation. The three elements of our, of our tradition of faith, what it means to place our faith into the Lord Jesus Christ. The three elements are this. Uh, they're very simple. We place our faith in someone. Point number two. By conviction, we believe the things that we have heard about that person to be true. So, we believe that what we have heard to be true. But knowing about Him and believing in Him is not enough, because what does Jesus say? Even the demons believe. But it's trusting Jesus for our salvation alone. That's what saving faith is. All three elements. We know Him, we believe in Him, and then we trust Him for our salvation and our salvation alone. And so, faith is this. John Stott has a really helpful quote. It's going to come up on the screen in his commentary on Romans. He says, faith, if we struggle with it, I think this is helpful. Faith is not burying, burying our heads in the sand. It's not saying, okay, this is what we believe, and putting our head in the sand. Or screwing ourselves up to believe what we know is not true, trying to convince ourselves of something that's not really true. Or even whistling in the dark to keep our spirits up some sort of a, a wing and a, and a prayer. On the contrary, faith is a reasoning trust. There can be no believing without thinking. Okay. And so, what we place our faith in, the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that He is true, 
And we place our life into His hand because we can trust Him. And faith, this faith that we're talking about, it's the only instrument to lay hold of what we've been thinking about all the way through Romans so far, righteousness. So the righteousness of Christ is the ground of our justification. Remember what we're, we're trying to put all of these pieces together. If we're up on the fourth floor here, uh, you're with me, and we're looking around, and we're survey, surveying these things. And what do we see? Righteousness. We know that in our natural self that we are not righteous. And we have all fallen short, and so we need Christ's righteousness. And that is the ground of our justification. We are deemed just because of His righteousness. And His righteousness is given to us, it's transferred to us, and that is our salvation. So, here's the next question then. Is salvation in any way due to you or I? Do we have any part to play in this? What merit do we have before God? Because be sure of this, churches are full of people who have not fully grasped this gospel. people who are saved by grace. Because what will happen in many churches is people will think that it's 70% them and 30% God. Or it's 30% God and 70% them. Good works, religious practice, obedience to the law, the moral law of the Scriptures. But in every moment, what are they doing? If someone says to us, that they're trusting in their good works or in the law or in their efforts or in their religious practice, what are they doing? Well, they're doing exactly what we find in chapter 3 and verse 27, boasting. Then what becomes of our boasting? You see what Paul's trying to say? How do we get in? How do we get to heaven? Well, it, it can't be anything to do with ourselves. There is to be, verse 27, there's to be no boasting of chapter 3. There's to be no boasting within the church. Why? Because we're not saved by our own efforts. This place, this church family, should be countercultural. It should not be like the workplace. There should be no one who walks about here puffed up with pride. There should be no swagger, as it were, in church. There should be no competition between members. There should be no show-offs. Our elders, those who seem to be in a loftier position, what are they? They're the first servant among the people of the church, ordained to be servants of the church. And so even the elders are not elevated in that sense above the people. They're servants of the people. So look at what happens then into chapter 4. What, what does Paul start with? Well, has Abraham in himself, has he got any sort of goodness in and of himself? Has he earned it himself? Because where he's taken us here is, is there two roads into heaven? In the Old Testament, were, were people able to be saved one way, and in the New Testament under Christ, is it, is it different? And Paul's trying to make the point, no, it's not. It's exactly the same. So he goes to Abraham. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Let's be really clear. We bring nothing to the table whenever it comes to salvation. 
The only thing that our good works deserve is the wages of sin, death, and wrath, and judgment. R.C. Sproul says the only thing that we have ever earned is eternal damnation. So, chapter 3 and verse 28, to hit this nail again, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So, friends, tonight there's nothing that within the walls of Hill Street as a church family that we should dare boast about. We shall not boast. Look at me. Look at my, my family heritage. Look at all of the things that I can do. Look at this. Look at that. Look at the other. We should not have those sins within our church family. There is nothing that we will boast in, but we will boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Because that has confused me, and if you're a little bit like me, you're not hard to confuse. What does it mean to boast in Christ? We say that we shouldn't boast, and then that we should boast in Jesus. It means this. It means that, that we boast that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, we're not boasting that we have this secret, and no one's allowed to get it unless they pay us. We're not boasting that we, that we in some way have found the truth, and no one else has. We're simply boasting about Jesus. We're telling people, look at Him. Look at what He has done. He's the man. We will boast about all that He has done, and all that He has done for us. We will glorify Him. We will make much of Him. We will tell about how great He is. You see verse 2 again of chapter 4, Abraham had nothing to boast about. Do you remember back to Genesis chapter 12? Abraham was going about his own business, and God took him, as it were, by the scruff of the neck, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to call you out, a man that didn't deserve it. And he gave him his promise. And Paul understands this. Paul understands that there was nothing good in him, even though he was super religious. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says that he has put no confidence or no boasting in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence or boasting in the flesh, if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteous, under the law, blameless. And then he goes on to say, but whatever I had is gain, I counted as loss. The picture is clear. Abraham was saved by faith and not by works. So, hold on a second. Some people are maybe saying, well, does James not say something else? Does James not say that faith without works is dead? Well, he does say that. So, what's going on there? Well, faith in Christ means that we are trusting in Christ for our salvation that He is our greatest need. He's our supreme treasure. And whenever we see Jesus and we claim Him as our own, whenever He saves us by grace, that does something in our hearts. And the outflowing of that is that we, we live to serve Him. Martin Luther put it like this, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is 
never alone. What's he saying? We're saved by faith alone, yes, but that faith then pushes us out into works. So, it's not the other way around. We don't work really hard to get saved, but we are saved, and then it gives us a a new birth, and we have a new mindset, and we see the things that are a priority, and we live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if there has been no change in someone's actions, no visible demonstration of sacrifice to self, no taking up of our cross, no counting the cost to following Jesus, then the Bible's definition says that we are not a Christian. And so, this idea that has materialized in in the church and within Northern Ireland and probably wider afield, that that we go to a mission, and we have talked about this before, we go to a mission and, and we get a bookmark and there's a date on the bookmark, and we think, this is the date that I trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, and we put it into our pocket, and we carry it with us, but really, we we have no care for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not our supreme treasure. Nothing has changed in our life. There's no counting the cost. There's no picking up of the cross and following after Him. Jesus has just become part of our life. We, we, We brought Him in like some extra hobby or ornament into our life, and no change. That is not biblical Christianity. So, back to our question. Who gets into heaven? Are there multiple different ways at different times? No, there's not. The Romans needed to understand this. Paul's writing to them, and he's saying, look, your works will not save you. The law will not save you. Circumcision will not save you. It's by faith alone in Christ alone that will save you, and you've got to get this clear, because people are going to ask you. People are going to ask you in Rome, and the other religions, they've got it the total other way around. Every other religion in the world says that you've got to work your way in, that you've got to find yourself in the balances, and you'll never quite know. You've got to cross your fingers and hope. Ask other people to do something for you after you've passed. Pay your way in. Effort. And it's a, it's a burden, isn't it, upon their people? And that's not what Jesus comes to bring. So, Abram was not saved by works, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4. He was not saved by circumcision. Look at verses 9 through 12. I was going to say something here about baptism, but the clock's beating me, so I'm not going to say anything about baptism. If you want to speak to me about that, there's some great things that we could draw out. We can do that at another point. He's not saved by circumcision, verses 9 through 12. He's not saved by the law, verses 13 through 17. And so, what we have here is is really on display for us the, the Protestant doctrine from the Reformation that Rome says is a legal fiction, and it's the doctrine that God counts people as righteous through faith alone in Christ alone. Rome will say to us that you have to work, that you've got to work your way in, that you've got to pay your way in. Yes, Jesus is there, but here's other things that you need to do. And there's nothing fictional about this. There's nothing fictional about this doctrine. There's nothing fictional about what God says is the, the giving of His righteousness, freely giving it to people. 
This is why Luther felt that, that Romans was the, the great watershed moment in his faith, as if someone had lifted the dark glasses off and he could see for the very first time. And this righteousness is given through a word that is called imputation. It's a theological word that simply just means that, that it's counted onto us or there's a transfer that's happened. And the transfer is this that we talked about. Christ's righteousness has been given to us. It has been counted to us. It has been imputed to us. And this is great news. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin went the other way. Our sin was imputed onto Christ, and His righteousness was given to us. Just as Adam's sin was imputed to all mankind, so too the righteousness of Jesus is given, transferred, imputed to all who will repent and to all who will believe. And what's the conclusion of that all? Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. You see the conclusion. Look at the blessing that comes. Here we, we have a quote from Psalm 32. And whenever we start to experience this, that we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, blessing comes. Look at verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. See the threefold forgiveness that we have? Your lawlessness, your, 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 your unworthiness, it's forgiven. Your sins, they're covered. And the Lord, well, the Lord's forgot His calculator, hasn't He? Verse 8, He will not count your sin. Well, this is good news. This is good news for us tonight. This is good news for me, and it's good news for you. Because if we were to put a, a tape recorder, for example, uh, uh, something to record us, and we were to judge ourselves by our own standards, never mind the Lord's, wouldn't we fail? The standards that we put on everyone else, I can't believe it whenever they did that. can't believe it whenever they did this. Did you see what such and such did against me today or this week? And we start to judge people all the time. We write our own law, as it were. And if we were to live by that own law, we would fall short, never mind God's law. And so this is great news, verse 7 and verses 8, that we have forgiveness and a covering, and that God will not count our sin because of who? Because of Christ. And so what does this doctrine do tonight? It humbles us all. It levels us all here in the church. To understand this again, to understand that we're not saved by our own efforts, but by Christ's. And so look at how our passage ends. Verse 24, we're told about the righteousness of God and how it will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, 
and who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Someone has paid the price for you. Someone has taken the punishment that you deserve. Someone has stood in your place. Why? So that you may be deemed just. So that you may have assurance. That's our second point, but we're not going to have time to explain it all tonight. Where's our assurance? Our assurance is in Christ and in Christ alone. That's where Paul takes us, and that Abraham was looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he believed in Him by faith, and we, we situated, look back at the cross, we see that God's promises came true in the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the promise-making and the promise-keeping God, and our assurance is found in Christ and in Him alone and not in ourselves, so that whenever people come and people say, whenever you ask them, or are a minister, we find this, whenever you ask them, what are they trusting on? perhaps it's on their deathbed, and you're asking them, what are you trusting on? And they say, oh, well, I've tried my best, or I've, I've done as well as I can do, or I'm a Presbyterian, or I've been catechized, or I've given thousands to the free will offering, or I've taken communion, or I've been baptized, or I've done for whatever I can do for the church. Do you know what? All of that is meaningless, and I couldn't care less if that's what you tell me. Tell me what Christ has done for you. Tell me what the Prince of Glory has done for you. Because you can have all you want. You can have as many times that you have come to the communion table as you like. You can have been baptized as many times as you like in many different places. You can know the catechism forward and backward, and you can be a Presbyterian, and you could have been a Methodist and a Baptist before that. But if you haven't got Jesus Christ tonight, then you're lost. You're lost. So, how do we get to heaven? That's really the wrong question. How do we get to the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we get to the man who, who went to the cross and who has made a payment for you? What do we need to do? How do I get to Christ? How do I get His righteousness? How do I get clothed in the things that I don't deserve? How, how do I get to, to be beside Him? How do I get united to Him? How do I, how do I get there? by faith alone. Abraham believed in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, and he was saved. And so too do we. We look to him by faith. For Abraham, you can see what it looked like. Look at verse 19. It looked like God would not keep his promises. He was a hundred, Sarah was barren, but he trusted, didn't he? Verse 20, he gave God the glory. Verse 21, he was fully convinced, and so he was counted as righteous. And whenever we understand this, and with this we close, what's the, what's the drive home point of Paul's logic? Where's he taking us to? He's taking us to chapter 5 and to verse 1. Therefore, think about all of the things that we've looked in chapter 4. Therefore, 
since we have been justified by faith, we have shalom, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the good news. That's the news that, that keeps us afloat this week. That's the news that sustains us whenever we look death in the face. That tonight, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the greatest transfer that's ever happened. I was trying to think of an illustration for this. And the only illustration I could think of was that one night us boys went for a Chinese. And you know with the electronic app, one of the boys went to transfer, uh, I think it was five pounds or else six pounds to one of the other lads. And he transferred him 5,000 or 6,000 pounds while we were sitting at the table. And he said, I, 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 any chance that you could transfer me that back? Now that seemed like a great transfer. But really we know that it's got nothing compared to this, right? How do we get to Jesus? By faith alone. Don't waste our time trying to earn our way. Trust in Christ. And then we can enjoy his shalom, his peace, peace with God. Let's, let's pray and then we're going to sing. Father in heaven, there's so much in this passage tonight, Lord, that we haven't yet unpacked. So many avenues that we haven't had time to walk down. So many great minds that we haven't been able to bore. But we thank you for the truth that we have thought about. Lord, we bring nothing, nothing to our own salvation. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. How do we get to Jesus? How do we get to your Son? Lord, we thank you that you have said that it is by faith alone. You haven't required us to go on a pilgrimage. You haven't required us to do anything else, simply to believe and to repent of our sin and we shall be saved. May each and every soul in this meeting house tonight lay hold of our Savior by faith alone, for we ask it in His precious name. Amen.